Hello guys, welcome to the first interview of the Leaf Takers podcast, where I'm interviewing fascinating people from various areas, which all have one thing in common. They took a risk and tried something novel and unique. This can be in areas such as business, sustainable technologies, investing, traveling, sports, or even gaming. So my first guest today is Daniel Neff. He is a very smart guy, very nice guy as well, that I was lucky enough to meet a couple of months ago. So who is Daniel? After finishing his engineering studies at the ETH in Zurich and MIT in Boston, he worked for several startups. The most famous probably Terralytics, where he was the VP of operations. And most recently with his newest venture called Oakura, he tries nothing less than to disrupt the traditional venture capital space. I'm very excited that he could come on the show. We have some very interesting topics that we cover, including Daniel's learnings from being a founder, how to use essentialist thinking to make better life decisions, tips on hiring and assembling the best team, as well as Daniel's favorite books and unique hobbies. So please enjoy this premiere episode of the Leap Takers podcast with Daniel Neff. Okay, welcome Daniel. Welcome to the Leap Takers podcast, episode number one. So I first thought we could start with your fascination about entrepreneurship and how you got into it. Um, since you started several companies or you were involved in several companies. So maybe walk me through how you got into entrepreneurship and why you, why you like that route that you took so far. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for being here, Remo. Um, uh, so I think what, what um, always fascinated me was that from an idea or from, I, yeah, at the end, ideas or possibilities that you only could imagine that are in your brain, that you could, um, uh, as long as you can fascinate others and bring them together, uh, turn um, an idea into something that is much more tangible and eventually a product, a company, um, uh, something that has much more um, impact on, on everyone that is involved. And I think <clears throat> I consider myself to have started rather late with entrepreneurial with an entrepreneurial way because until I until I finished my bachelor's at ETH in mechanical engineering. I wasn't even too much involved uh, and didn't have much insight in, in this entire entrepreneurial way of thinking. But it basically started with uh, joining ETH Juniors, a student consulting company at, at ETH that uh, is a, a group of very, uh, um, very driven individuals uh, wanting to, to improve themselves, wanting to do more than just uh, more boring studies at ETH. <laughs> and that got me very fascinated in, in as well the abilities and the possibilities, the ideas of taking something you, with ETH juniors is basically selling projects to, to companies, but as a student that is typically far beyond what you, what you imagine that you can, you don't think you can just talk and pitch to a group of executives from a larger company and get them convinced that they should pay you some money for then what we would do. Um, search for students that would actually do the work. So we do we would do kind of a, a project uh, project work. But that kind of got me drawn in, into that route of realizing how much uh, more interesting it can be uh, something more uh, self-determined than just uh, joining a larger company and, and working a nine-to-five job. Uh, when I went um, um, to write my master thesis in the US, I got very... Uh, uh, drawn into um, what the U.S. obviously is. Everyone, uh, many people there, they, they want to do and start something by themselves. And before I went to the U.S., 
when I was talking to people and friends, and if I would say, oh, I think I want to start something myself, it was, um, uh, uh, back then it was still not as popular as now. I think now everyone talks as well about entrepreneurship. Yeah, right. But back then it was more like, okay, weird, are you sure, why? But when I went to the US and I shared the same intent, everyone was looking at me like, yeah, I mean, of course, everyone does. And I think I got I got I got tossed into that ecosystem in, in Boston is particularly um, as as well being one of the of the hotspots as well for startups and uh, innovation ecosystem at the big universities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was um, uh, I joined the um, or I was part of the opening of the Harvard Innovation Lab. Half Harvard students and half MIT students were able to to apply and, and to join. So I got in from the MIT side. And um, it was uh, an extended weekend, just thinking of ideas, trying to iterate very quickly, kind of a, um, uh, I think it was as well the very early days of these startup weekends or startup weeks um, that uh, I got into a small group and we, we tossed a few interesting ideas around and it was for me very, um, um, it got much more realistic to, to see and realize that that actually ideas and fascinations could could be turned much faster into something more tangible, or at least trying. Um, because obviously the many people that, that I met there, uh, they either have worked already on several things, they have failed on several things and iterated, and some of them uh, got, got further. Mm-hmm. But um, when I came back afterwards, coincidentally bumped into um, contact um, that I had back from... Uh, ETH Junior's times that um, a colleague uh, we worked with as a partner uh, with ETH Juniors, I got uh, interested in a in a case that I think they just won a startup.ch award, uh, got 50,000 as a grant and started with a um, what I thought was uh, um, uh, the product not really not really something I was excited about but rather like the concept of uh, mass customizing uh, footwear. That And I think in retrospect, it was interesting because I didn't really share any passion for the product. And that probably was as well not, the, <laughs> not, a, not an optimal decision because by now I would obviously say, well, if you don't share a passion for the product, don't do it. <laughs> but um, uh, I got into that and uh, um, into that uh, business and joined and but was then in a, in a I think some, how, how could I say this? It's very, I made some very interesting learnings. To realize a uh, what it means if a team constellation is maybe not as uh, adaptive, or if uh, um, uh, the iterations and the speed at which you try to understand what does the market really want and what did you initially think you want to do, iterating that fast, okay. so really taking the the concept of a lean startup. Um, much more serious uh, so, in order to iterate fast. Yeah, maybe just to quickly interrupt. Uh, sorry. So just to summarize, I think you you went to the US and what I understand, this had a big impact on you then once you came back to Switzerland to to join or to start this company, right? And so in the US, was that during your master studies or how can I order this in, in your timeline and how long were you there and where exactly in the US, just to go back? Oh yeah, of course, course. yeah, yeah. And thanks. Um, so I went for one year in 2000 and what was that even 2011? Okay. I think summer 11, I went over to write my master thesis as the kind of final part of, of my master's at ETH in management, technology and economics. 
initially the plan was to just be for, there for half a year to write a thesis and then come back. Um, but the professor I was uh, I was with um, Olivier Devec, uh, fascinating, um, super driven professor that um, he himself he he did his PhD in, in at ETH. He was he was including me in very interesting additional initiatives that he was as well involved. So in one particular one where it's an additional commission that um, uh, where I was able to uh, where I was included and able to contribute. And because of that, the entire stay um, got extended. So eventually I was for one year um, uh, in Boston or Cambridge at MIT to be more specific. And um, then afterwards, uh, it came back. Okay, okay. Very interesting. And do you think for someone that wants to take the same path, because in my own experience as well, I think it's very helpful to have these experiences, very formative experiences abroad, be it as an exchange semester or doing a, writing a paper or a master thesis or something similar abroad. Are there any specific tips that you would give to people that, that would like to try something themselves, if you can come up with something right now? Yeah. Or yeah. any recommendations yeah. for people who would like to pursue something similar? I think, yeah, I mean, for everyone it's, it's probably different. But um, if I reflect back on it, I think it's, on one hand, it's the kind of the, the continuous curiosity that I always had as well with traveling and what you mentioned as well, um, uh, going up, starting abroad. So maybe as a background, interesting to know is that, um, I grew up in Ivory Coast until I was five, so West Africa. So completely different environment. And um, as well, during my studies, I, always, uh, I was always very interested to try to not to just do one thing, but so I went as well to Singapore for a semester. It was very interesting as well. It gave me a different, whole new, different perspective. And then as well the US. But I think for everyone that feels like um, adventurous enough, I think definitely to, to go abroad and collect as many different inputs and, and ideas. Because I think the more you see, the more you realize what you like, what you are maybe less interested in. And the more you can even almost kind of iterate on your own uh, interests to find something that you really feel passionate about and interested to spend your time with. Okay. And so you came back to Switzerland and you joined Diamond Heels mm -hmm. company. Right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, you, you mentioned that you did not have a big passion for the product, uh, but you still pursued it. So maybe continue where, where, where I stopped you before. So you said there were some learnings involved in that. And what would you do different maybe nowadays. And maybe also qu quickly tell me more about the product or what you were building with mm -hmm. Diamond Heels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, at the core is basically, or, or how it started is, uh, the way the, uh, the founders um, uh, pitched it as well, won this competition, was by introducing um, a simple, mean of, simple means of uh, creating your own shoe. Basically, as a woman, if you want to create a high heel, you can choose all sorts of different aspects of it. Um, uh, and through um, interface, web interface, um, you basically can click different pieces together. But also in a physical, um, as part of a physical box, where you have all these different component, components in it, you can actually have a much more tangible um, feeling of what's going to be if you put, if you look at these different uh, items, whether it's like different types of letters, whether it's different uh, forms of shoes, whether it's like different sizes and, and width of heels and so on. So a combination of a much more tangible feeling on what you, how you could put the pieces together. But then as well, um, through a, an, an interface, just um, clicking 
and deciding on how would would the shoe eventually look like, and then pressing a button, and then being an order being sent um, to the production facility that actually would um, would then produce. On one hand, we had to your other question, um, uh, maybe as well the the setup. We had um, we had interesting uh, manufacturers as well that produced for Armani's and, and so on, so high end product. Um, uh, production sites, um, but we realized as well the reluctance that they were in, in terms of trying something new that obviously would create much higher cost for them because it's not just a mass production. So in, in summary, I think what, what I was particularly interested in is the mass customization that goes along with such a business idea of figuring out how can you produce something almost at, at mass but individual. And so from my mechanical engineering background, obviously there were some interesting aspects of it. But I think in hindsight, the challenge, um, um, and I think the learnings that I took with me is that joining a, a team or a case that is already there with certain dynamics and certain um, entanglements and so on, is almost like if you sit down on a chessboard where someone has already moved a few items that might have you the the player might have already won or lost a few of the um of the pawns but at the end you, you don't really start you cannot set it up in a, in a in a way that you might have done if you would have started so i think that is is the interesting aspect that i think as well or looking back a way to to think of whenever you start maybe something new how much can you how much can you still form or how much can you not form? And I think that was for me a very interesting learning. But um, before we even, we already, we, we, uh, we got, um, it's like a, a licensing system. That's how, how do you say in, uh, in English and um, licensing yeah, yeah. system. And we, I think we lined up about 20 different licensees in uh, different cities around, in, in Switzerland. But at that point, um, uh, when I was uh, um, interacting and met with uh, Luciano and, and Georg, the, the founders of Terralytics, they had just like closed uh, this round and uh, round, and uh, one thing led to the other, and, and we realized why not why not this joining together because I've worked with them as well during my ETH juniors time. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that was the almost inevitable next step because it was it was very difficult to decline their offer and, and joining them um, in their early startup. Okay, okay. Then, so yeah. that was so kind of was a the next step decide, decision point where you kind of switched from Diamond Heels then mm-hmm. over to Terralytics. Mm-hmm. So Terralytics, what did you know about it when you <laughs> decided to to jump in there? Like. Now it's known as this analytics company that tracks flow of people and draws certain conclusions from that for, for cities, etc. But was it always the same concept right from the beginning or did that evolve over time? Or how did they, maybe better question, how did they pitch it to you to, to join their, their startup? I mean, it's, at, I already was, uh, even before at, or at the very earliest stage when Georgen as well and uh, um, Donald Kosman, um, when they um, and Luciano, when they at the very early stage were working on it, um, was already involved in some sort of, of like, uh, um, uh, I remember Georg, I think, pitched uh, at one point before he, he went to one of the venture kick events. Uh, so that, that was, I was already involved and, and kind of had an idea 
from an early stage. So at the, the moment where we um, met again in exchange and realized that we could as well, that I could uh, join them, it was not too much of a question like, oh, so uh, what are you exactly doing? Mm-hmm. Um, um, so it was already clear that um, there will be some kind of way to get from larger corporations that have um, big data sets, as for, so for example, telecommunications companies, to get access to that uh, data, um, uh, polish it, bring it to, uh, analyze it and bring it to uh, into a form that for an additional party would generate some business insights. And so there were obviously different kind of aspects of it that would, slightly change or be amended or different industries being looked at um, but at its very essence it, it, it already was was that <laughs> okay okay and what was your role at Terralytics? so basically anything that um, uh, that was not on Georg or Luciano's table <laughs> so to say so all all operations aspects of it was very interesting to me as well because I I, I haven't had before the possibility to really deal with all these different things that are necessary in a company um, that is growing and, and, and was growing that rapidly. And was Terralytics a bootstrap startup or did you get funding, external funding from from VCs or angel investors very early on? Yeah, the latter. The latter, okay. And so maybe just do you have any insights from that for other aspiring founders do you rather recommend to get funding right away or to first try to bootstrap it yourself? <laughs> Do you have any, <laughs> if you can tell? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think this not even related to Terralytics, but I think this is more like um, what I now spend more time with and understanding like what works and what does not work in the venture industry. To what extent is venture capital broken? <laughs> As I think a famous report from the Kaufman Foundation some, I don't know, five years back was published. I think the question, what, if I would recommend that or not, I think it really depends on the business on, on, and as well what the founders want to do. If you get money from a VC, there are like some opportunities because if you are the one promising star and potential outlier in their portfolio and if they, they, they are convinced that you're that, then you can... Um, experience a tremendous uh, boost and, and, and that is obviously kind of the hyper growth route that you then um, possibly can take but uh, as we all know not uh, all <laughs> portfolio companies in in a, in a venture portfolio are outliers if there's any at all and if you're not one of those um, high promising ones then the, the limited resources of these funds are, are um, often not enough to um, to help you and extend and, and provide you that support that your company might might need to um, to be successful. But as well, the, the word successful is already very difficult because uh, it's successful that you have to be able to return a 10x in a in five or ten years, or is as well successful if you can um, build a company that generates sustainable revenue within a, within a short amount of time. So I think to, to boil it down to your question, I think it, it, it really depends what route you want to take. But in any case, if you can bootstrap, I think it's uh, I think it's always better. Obviously, if you bootstrap and someone else that does the same gets venture money, they might be stronger in terms of outcompeting you because you might not have the time to just like uh, build your company slowly. So... It really depends on the context, but I think at the end it's important to 
not to just look at the um, uh, selling price, but the fine print. And it means not uh, necessarily the valuation or the money you possibly can uh, acquire um, by joining a VC, but rather what is really in, what are, uh, how much uh, operational or hands-on support do you get? How strong is that network of the VC? And because important to know is most VCs are not <laughs> profitable. It's, it's, it's a horrible, it's an industry where you wonder how, how is it possible that so much money flows in? And, but I could <laughs> continue on these topics, obviously, but, um, it's not, it's not the VC's problem, uh, caused necessarily, mm-hmm. but I think it's a setup and the structure and the misaligned incentives that are just in place, uh, as of today. So I think if I had, a, I think if I would build something where I have the chance to just bootstrap, I think bootstrapping is always nicer or, um, taking, um, uh, investments from individuals or corporations that are in for the long term, that are in, um, that are interested to build something in a sustainable way rather than like tossing money quickly and then take it out fast. Yeah. yeah. I also think as a founder, you really need to think about what is your motivation and your main reason why you're doing this. Mm-hmm. Why are you building this company? Because this differs for er- everyone. And yeah, some people, they want to grow quickly and for that, a VC mm-hmm. is definitely helpful. And then maybe you have a big exit later mm-hmm. and <laughs> you make some nice money. But for others, maybe that's not the main motivation. And then mm-hmm. it might be helpful to grow at your own speed with your own, in your own terms. Mm-hmm. And then also build something that you have full control over. Mm-hmm. I think that's also something that people should be aware of when mm-hmm. they think about different funding options. You already started touching some of the points I wanted to talk with you about later uh, regarding the misalignment of interests in VC or that the VC model could potentially be broken. And I think that's where your newest venture is. The, in this area, mm-hmm. you position yourself with your newest venture, Wakura. And yeah, it might be the right time to bring this up. So after Terralytics, I think you spent a few years there. Maybe walk me through what happened next and, <laughs> yeah. and so, how, how did you yeah. start Oakura? But maybe start why you made that shift in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So obviously this was a, was a very difficult decision for me because not only I, I like um, uh, Terralytics, but as well, obviously the founders very much and as well um, all the people that we, we kind of were able to, to convince to join that cause. So it was a difficult decision for me to to do a next step. But it was as well, after almost three years, it was um, uh, felt as well natural to the extent that I felt now um, I uh, had someone, uh, or I kind of assembled as well, a team that was able to take care of of, of the operational parts that I was, uh, was responsible for and finance. But um, I uh, realized as well that um, my passion as well, or my interest for the operational aspects of a company is... Uh, was rather driven by understanding and learning these new aspects. Um, but uh, once you kind of hire someone from a third country or once you set up, I don't know, from, from employee incentive plans to, to all these different sources, like it becomes as well repetitive to some sort. And I think for me, what fascinates me most um, about just life as well in general, I think is the interactions with humans is the ability to turn things into, into new things or ideas into, in, in, into, into reality. So for me, it was, um, um, a step that I felt, um, uh, it was time and as well. 
because uh, on one hand um, I uh, I thought why not a new challenge with while learning to fly so something completely different. Um, so when I left uh, Terralytics, it was with the intent to uh, learn uh, to do a private pilot license and to uh, to think of um, how could I after these um, these insights that I've uh, gained from. Um, being involved in, in the US, but as well in Switzerland in different startups, different positions, very different industries. How could, and I think it kind of dawned on me, the more I spend time on thinking like, why why is the failure rate of startups so high? Why do nine out of 10 startups fail? Or why do premature exits even exist? Why do founders get squeezed out or forced to kind of sell their companies before it's the right time? So... The more I, the more I spend time on this, the more I realized how many things in, in the startup ecosystem and the venture, the venture business are, is kind of not optimally aligned. But I was always, also, when I left Terralytics, I, uh, I founded a, um, a company together with two other partners that, uh, with the idea to, um, uh, it's a small venture company, uh, um, where we wanted to invest in startups at a very early stage and help them with, uh, uh, operational support. But uh, when I came back from flying, so I went actually, I did the, uh, the private pilot license, came back um, and uh, started to spend more time on building a company. We incorporated, I think, pretty soon after I left Terralytics. And, but the more I, I spent time on, on thinking on how we could actually then be more efficient and helping more founders, the more I realized as well, there is just such a natural limit to all these venture business models that I've come across until then on how you could help more founders to succeed. And maybe a very quick excursion, I think, as uh, Walt Disney, I think, um, at some point put it, where he said, we don't make movies to make more money, we make more money to make more movies. Wow. And I think in that very, very essence, for me as well, um, I didn't want to just do a venture company to make money. But I would want to do a venture company to support more startups, to help more founders, to help more companies to become successful. Um, and th- with that, I realized as well the limitations of such a of such a more traditional model where you invest in startups, help them a little bit, and then uh, sell these stakes um, at, a, at a higher uh, um, valuation at a later point, or some of that in that portfolio. And then getting more involved as well with the crypto space, um, I, I realized as well, um, ooh, there's a lot of stuff going on as well with tokenization of venture funds and so on. And the more I was digging in deeper and the more I talked to as well close friends of mine that I always thought would be great to start a company with, I realized, oh, this actually could be something much more, uh, much more significant than just like a little bit of something, um, something uh, same, same, but a little bit different, but rather something that really could have an impact on a much larger scale by, by basically um, including some of the ideas um, and concepts from the um, crypto and blockchain world into the traditional venture, uh, venture industry. And um, so obviously another uh, very difficult decision was then with the, with the partners I was then with, with that uh, company that I founded right after um, Terralytics, was that I realized as well, because I was the only one um, uh, working full-time on that and the others were still employed in their other jobs, I felt like one week of me was like already a big distance to them because they didn't have enough time to devote to that as well. Very new um, topics of this crypto and, and, and tokenized venture fund idea. And, and so the very difficult decision was then to eventually 
not continue that venture, but um, with new individuals and friends of mine that 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 I um, uh, that I shared this kind of I would almost say like newer form of a venture model. The more I realized that uh, everyone that I convinced to join this uh, this new endeavor, I owe them the best possible setup and structure to possibly make it a success. And, 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 and that's where I then had the difficult decision to, to, to continue, to discontinue with the previous uh, founders, but then um, uh, assemble this new team with Okura. And so that was then how we, um, uh, how I came to, uh, to found then Okura, mm-hmm. which we incorporated the um, uh, beginning of last year. And maybe just to quickly interrupt, yeah, you said this, it was a really difficult decision for you to kind of stop that venture. Mm-hmm. Were there any tips or what was your thought process there? Like, uh, I assume it's not something you decided from one day to the other. Was, were there any tools or other yeah, measures you used to, to make that decision? Do you have any advice there for someone who might be in a similar decision if they should continue something they already started or if they should just stop and start something else a good question i think <laughs> i i think one I, what i always like to kind of do if i if i see something is kind of not in line or something seems not not um, optimal then i wonder like okay so if i mentally change something and say like okay so what if this was not what if it was different and then i look at the picture and think like okay would this be better would this kind of be a relief is and and I think what I like to do and what maybe for others could help too is just think on these in these different scenarios. Going them through, sometimes I just need to go running for two hours and then I can much more clearly think of these different options and I can as well touch base with myself and realize like, okay, so is this a structure that w- or um, a combination that would make sense? And if something then, if I gravitate towards like one or a certain group of scenarios, then then I realize, okay, so this is probably like, would be a much more meaningful way to do. But I think at the end is another idea or another way to look at it could as well be a, a much more like an essentialist view on something where um, every one of us has like, thing, we own things and, and our homes or apartments are cluttered with things that we might not even need. Um, and rather... Um, to look at something and say like, oh, um, uh, do I want to get rid of this? And what would I want to want in return? Um, we should rather think of, so if I didn't own this, if I didn't already possess this, would I really, what would I be willing to give for it? And I think just this slightly different perspective could help and realize that just because something is now in a certain way and we accept that it's here doesn't mean that we should actually just continue. So I don't know whether there's a, a comparison that makes sense, but I think, or is understandable, but I think not accepting the status quo just because it's convenient or it seems more natural and rather wondering like, okay, is this really a best setup? Is this really how, if I could step back and watch again the, the comparison with the chessboard, if I could step out and then just observe the two players, is this what I think would make most sense? Or do I just move here because I feel like ah, I'm kind of cornered or I need to do this because I already started? So I think there we humans have so many biases. Um, and, and I think one of 
of these biases as well that um, it's the sunk cost, right? You mm -hmm. already started something, you sit in a movie and you have already paid the ticket and you think, ah, oh, this is a horrible movie, I, I don't enjoy it. But you should rather step out and then say like, let's make use of the remaining hour that I have of my life than just continue with that just because it paid already the ticket. So I think this is, these are kind of the mental concepts that I, that I like to toss around in my head to really kind of figure out what are best decisions to continue sometimes. yeah i think that's very valuable advice uh especially the the song cost fallacy i mean mm -hmm. i think we all <laughs> always fall into that trap and even though yeah i think that the movie is a great example <laughs> uh, the same thing for me with books even if it's a terrible book that i don't yeah. like i still make myself finish it and kind of suffer through the last few hundred pages even though i think i would be better off not spending my time there anymore yeah yeah <laughs> so definitely <laughs> valuable, valuable advice so yeah i think now you're at this point where you yeah you you made that hard decision and you kind of pivoted to this new business that you want to start mm -hmm. which is now Uakura. Mm -hmm. am i right mm -hmm. okay you talked about assembling the team how did you go about that because I think hiring is a very or not even hiring in that stage I think just getting the right people to start a new venture with is probably the number one most important decision mm -hmm. you can make mm -hmm. so in my opinion so how did you go about that um, so I think it's a mix it's a mix between like obviously kind of what is the best what is kind of your your dream team or the, the individuals that you might already know and might have thought of already but then uh, how realistic is it to have them um um, included, I mean, in terms of uh, do they have enough time? Are they close enough? Are they committed enough? And so I think the combination of the, um, if you would say, kind of the availability and the ability is kind of something to 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 juggle as well that for me was important. Even with Okura, we had um, a few iterations or I experienced a few iterations because those that were the very beginning involved are not, we, we are, how can I say, like, um, in order to get to the to the team now, there was just as well were iterations that um, uh, that we underwent with all individuals that I think would have been great to even still be part of it as close um, as the core founding team. But on the other hand, as well, it's just not always realistic that individuals that might not be close enough locationally or that are not um, available at this moment to that extent. So I think as well with the team, it's just um, it's a mix of finding what is really what is driving them as well, because the, the, the driving motivation should as well be like kind of the, the longer term change that we can make than rather like a, um, a shorter term gain. None of them that um, that were in this kind of uh, closer or outer group of the initial team was short short term oriented. So that was already obviously one of the big reasons. Um, to assemble them, but then I think to the actual core team that we are now, this is just underwent as well iterations itself. But I think it's very important then just to to start with in one way and then just see what happens later. I think for that very reason, this is well important to have whenever you start and we have a core team that you agree on a certain vesting period because you never know what happens to individuals. They might have personal changes that um, that come into place. They might um, need to move to another location because maybe because of their partners and so on, or they might not be moved back. And so 
I think the flexi. Long story short, I think it's the um, um, the, the flexibility that you need to have, even in this in this early stage, yeah, you know, of ascending team. But so you would say flexibility and that everyone can commit a hundred percent to is mm -hmm. very important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now I think you also said some of the founders or co-founders of mm -hmm. Procure, they are your personal friends as well. Mm -hmm. How do you view that? Because I think some people, they would try to avoid starting a company with personal friends. Mm -hmm. They try to strictly distinguish between kind of the business part mm -hmm. and the friendship part. How do you view that? Because there's also the other view that I think you trust each other already, which is a big factor. And mm -hmm. uh, that can also be a very beneficial factor in making the business work. Yeah. yeah. What do you think about that? I think it's a very blurry line. I don't think it's binary. I don't think it's either one or the other. I think it's it's much more blurry. And if you start working with someone, or at least what I've experienced as well, or maybe is more like my the way I function, is that I think um, it's always easier, and you get actually more more stuff done if you understand each other better. And that very often implies as well that there is some sort of friendship or or kind of um, connection that you start to share. So even if you maybe start with someone that you purely view on a business transactional side, I would argue that if you're capable of, of forming relation, healthy relationships, it's more natural that you anyway as well befriend each other. So in, in, I think in that sense, it becomes maybe more a question, would you want to start with someone that you were already friends with? Or would you accept that someone you, you're not friends with at the beginning that you start as well a friendship? Over the course of time. So I think unless we would really much more like try to separate and really not be friends. And I think if you view the, if you view the people you work with as, as humans, then rather like just a workforce, I would argue that more naturally there is some sort of friendship that, that starts as well. I wouldn't want to work with people I would not want to be as well friends with. But I think to the other topic, I think that you indirectly um, uh, um, brought up, I think it's very important to still distinguish between like the business activity that you need or the goals and the, the, the targets you want to reach and then how you treat the human. Because just because you're friends doesn't mean that you should accept that um, a certain goal is not achieved or that people are not doing what they're supposed to do. And I think it's... Um, It's a, it's a very important distinction that just because you're friends with someone, if you share a goal, if you have a goal to go somewhere, then let's say you want to you wanna sail somewhere and the other person is, is, is trying to steer and looks at the map and is supposed to be able to know where to go. If they drive to a wrong course, then it's, even if it's your friend, it's not okay to just say, oh, you know, it's okay. No, it's, it's not okay. This is like, this is, this is bad. You know, I think you have to still be able to kind of go ahead and, 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 and fight. So be almost tough on the cause, but soft on the person. Mm -hmm. I forgot, to, it's, it's someone else, I think, um, said, I don't know, it's a quote, but, yeah, yeah. but I think at the very essence, this is, I think, what, what should be, how I, I view it and how, how I think. Um, so being soft means you can be friends, but if you want to, if you share a common goal, you have to be as well. You have to give each other a very hard time because otherwise you're never going to get there. Yeah, I fully agree. I think it's difficult, but these conversations are necessary. Definitely in a, in a startup context mm -hmm. where it, I think some wrong decision could really be the end of the company as well, or it has a very big yeah. impact on a company and there you need, really need to be on the same page. So I think now it would be an 
a good time to start talking about Wakura. We mentioned the name <laughs> several times before. <laughs> uh, I also heard from a lot of people it, it, they don't really know what it means actually. <laughs> so first of all, <laughs> what does Wakura mean and then what is it exactly? Yeah. What is the company? Okay, yeah, of course. So it, people might, might think it sounds uh, Japanese, but um, it's a, a word play between two words. On one hand, oak, oak tree ecosystem uh, provider. So many, many different um, uh, species are, are basically um, uh, part of um, oak trees. And there is a huge ecosystem, an ecosystem provider. But it's, of, of course, it's all a great building material. You can build ships and you can sail to different um, uh, continents. But um, so the oak as kind of an ecosystem provider, a building material, um, combined with Kura, uh, which is the old uh, Roman goddess that the word care and cure comes from, is the word combination that at the essence very much describes as well what we do, that we bring like a, a, an ecosystem, startup and venture ecosystem, but change it to the extent that, or I wouldn't say cure, but change it um, for the better for the, the participants. And so that is the combination Oakura. There is as well, I think in New Zealand, uh, um, um, a surfer spot um, that uh, I think is a small fishing village, but that's where the name eventually came from of this word combination. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. I, that, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and now what is Oakura? I know it draws from what is possible with, with blockchain mm -hmm. and, and crypto, um, but maybe in your own words, what is the goal of Oakura? Because I think you're trying to incent set the better incentives for startup success and the, the whole VC mm -hmm. discussion we had before. Maybe you could give a quick introduction into what, what is Oakura. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what we want to do with Oakura is we want to make more entrepreneurs successful. We want to we make entrepreneurs um, succeed faster and more often. Um, as mentioned uh, earlier, uh, at the moment you have nine out of 10 startups that fail. You have 95% um, of venture funds are not really returning or um, um, uh, enough uh, money for the huge amount um, of time that they keep these, uh, the money locked. So um, what we really at the essence want to do, we want to, um, we are building a system that where we want to make more founders more successful. Now, obviously, there are probably many questions in terms of how, how can we do it and, and why. But um, from uh, from industry data, 25, maybe almost 30 years of venturing data, um, it's as well much better understood that there is not really a winner's picking. The ability of choosing which startup is going to be very successful is, is a very, very difficult it's very difficult. <laughs> so obviously the workaround is to just have a portfolio and possibly have a larger portfolio um, to more likely have one outlier in it that, that might be able to return the other losses you have. But it's as well understood that if you have typically, even at this early stage, angels that are willing to step in and help much more, um, uh, much more operationally, much more um, uh, thoroughly that startup to complement the skills and the network that they don't have, that um, these additional hands-on support can lead to a much higher success rate as well of these ventures. 
it's, uh, it seems kind of obvious, but the problem is with the uh, in the current venture industry, there is not a system where you can help these founders um, at a larger scale. You have as a uh, as a fund, as an angel, as any kind of startup supporter, you have very limited capacities. And then how could you do that? How could you help startups uh, much more hands-on, but as well at scale? And at the end, this is exactly what we do with Okura, because instead of just us providing money and then helping with our limit, very limited capacity and, and limited um, expertise, a particular startup, we basically incentivize an entire network of experts, uh, advisors, and mentors to do that, but not do it just for free and not do it just for fiat money, which these startups anyway don't have, or not enough at this early stage. We enable them to earn a stake of that entire venture portfolio that we have. So it's almost like a, from a traditional fund that has limited partners to investors of a fund, um, we, we move to a system that from limited partners, uh, we move to lim- unlimited partnerships. So because eventually everyone, all every expert um, that um, we, we have as part of that community, every expert that helps a startup with a specific uh, challenge or problem, they can earn that stake through that work that they provide. So to summarize, you have a, an ecosystem of different startups that you select and then also of service providers that are part of this whole ecosystem. And they help each other out by trading a token that represents this portfolio of startups mm-hmm. of that ecosystem. So that's kind of the currency for the services within that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Is that a correct Yeah, that's uh, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, um, uh, if another way to describe what we do is as well um, advice for equity. So we build a network of, of experts that really can be like individuals that have experience in specific industries or um, access to particular networks or um, have built companies, sold companies, or know how to solve specific operational aspects of a company or individuals that have cutting edge knowledge in, in a specific technology. And we allow them basically to earn a stake in exchange um, for the work they provide. And that can be either a stake from that entire portfolio, if we've invested in that startup, or it can as well be a startup that is um, uh, that we deem interesting enough to be part of that network and a startup that has tokenized their own equity and is able to exchange its own equity for uh, for advice from a specific um, uh, advisor. But it's important to see that network as an enabler for these um, startups to find the right resource. Okay, so you are now building this company for... Uh, how long or at what stage are you at right now? Um, so we um, we incorporated beginning of last year mm-hmm. and have um, uh, um, we received a small grant from ETH, uh, ETHJ fund, realized in summer last year that it is much easier to get very high profile experts as well part of into the network because many of them already they help startups or they have knowledge that uh, they do not capitalize on. They don't get anything in return. And so suddenly with our system, they, they actually can get something back. We thought before we just like uh, build an entire platform, we rather try out whether we can find not only these interesting experts, but as well interesting startups uh, to then actually do such a, um, an, an investment and see how the ex- if and how they, that exchange is going to happen. So we did that. It's kind of a, a proof of concept that we did um, and uh, were able to successfully um, uh, close that end of last year. Um, so we realized, okay, what we did now, much more uh, 
uh, how to say, hands-on and uh, manual that we need to be able to do that um, on a platform. So at the very moment, we are, we are testing our alpha version of that platform. And we have um, about 150 um, experts from uh, chairman of large Swiss corporations or to entrepreneurs that have built and sold companies to high-level experts in very specific fields from big data, AI, AR, VR. Um, so it's already a very interesting mix of, of individuals that unless you already have a huge network, you don't just easily get across these. Mm -hmm. And even if you have that network, you probably don't know who actually has what knowledge or specialized really in something or could help you with something. Mm -hmm. So by now already, um, uh, we have a database where you can basically search and that's what the alpha version um, facilitates even more because everyone that applies and gets um, an approval from our side because we really check the, each individual it's uh, it allows us really to to keep that quality of these advices as well quite high and uh, so that is kind of at the very moment the stage we're in we have um, a project as well with Inno Swiss the former Karte um, Bund um, Swiss governmental um, supported initiative um, where we work with the University of Zurich Blockchain Center and are in preparation of building a consortia that uh, we have assembled now um, a few um, key players, not only from university or academia side, but as well from industry, some players that we, um, that we think will be able to contribute even more to the larger plan of building this platform. So are you also already looking at startups that will be part of it or is mm -hmm. this then the next stage let's say once you are more like live operationally mm -hmm. as well that uh, you then think about adding startups to the ecosystem and then tokenizing part of the equity no already now yeah already so now. that means yeah so that means um, um if uh, there are interesting uh, or interested um, uh, founders we are already now including them and we we can not only tokenize their equity, but as well, um, we can provide them with this um, share portfolio that obviously at the moment this is just growing. So it's like still at its earlier stage, but it allows us already now to help them connect. Um, and uh, because we have stakes in them, uh, we, are, we are not imposing any other restrictions. So the platform they get access to is really only to help them find the right partner. It might be that they uh, get investment from one or um, acquire a uh, high-profile advisor through that platform. But it's really up to these participants then. So we don't impose any other restrictions. It's The platform is really just an enabler for these startups to find answers to uh, relevant answers to questions faster. Okay. I think it sounds very interesting and I would encourage everyone to, to have a look at it if you are interested to learn more or maybe become part of economy mm -hmm. so i think personally it's a very cool project a very different approach to this new type of vc model mm -hmm. almost so best flock to you there thanks <laughs> and so maybe this is a time to shift gears a little bit i wanted to also talk to you about more maybe more personal and more rapid fire questions mm -hmm. so i'm as a podcast host i'm very interested in learning more a bit about the person mm -hmm. behind all these companies mm -hmm. as well and kind of what makes you tick and since i like reading a lot do you have any books that you would recommend aspiring founders or or it can be anyone that that you think are meaningful to you 
or that you would recommend mm -hmm. all the people reading? A good question. I, I have, <laughs> I have many. I'm a notorious book starter, but a very bad finisher. <laughs> One book that I finished and that I really liked a few years back is the The Power of Habit from uh, Charles Duhigg. So I think this is really one as well that that, um, that I th I thought was very very eye opening in many aspects, just to understand better of what makes human um, uh, do certain things. I think that there is a there is maybe a, a larger list of different books that I find interesting from for for different uh, aspects. But I think what I'm often as well interested is in, in books that look at um, at why are people doing some why are they doing what they do what makes what creates drive and um, a book that i haven't finished yet but um, is a new book of robert green uh, the one that wrote the 48 laws of power that i think is as well kind of is um, amusing to read particularly for those that um, uh, uh, that follow politics <laughs> um, or um, are interested as well in um, um, in this more, um, uh, uh, I would say, almost Machiavellian house of cards and, and, and other kind of series, not to, not to exploit power, but I think to understand the patterns better. Because um, the, the humans are so... so um, humans can be so manipulated, and, and it just has been shown in history. There are so many um, um, organizations, companies um, that, that do that. Um, and I think for that, it's a very good way to understand as well better um, what makes humans do something? And the newest book of, of Robert Greene is Understanding Human Nature or something um, that I okay. thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. But I haven't finished yet. But okay. it's, I haven't put it away yet. So, but <laughs> Cool. Yeah, I'm going to look all of these books up mm -hmm. and I'll add them to, to the notes of the mm -hmm. podcast so people can have a look at it. Maybe something else. I think you, you mentioned before a few times boat or sailing etc mm -hmm. would I be wrong to assume that you have some type of interest in, <laughs> in, in activities in this area <laughs> um, yes and no so I, I'm not sailing myself I don't have a sailing license okay it's on my list that before I went to do my uh, private pilot license I thought okay next thing I want to do is either sailing or f learning how to fly and then I picked flying because I thought I can do the sailing as well later. Okay. But I have very much interest more as well from a historical um, point of view because I think uh, obviously history is an entire other part that I'm just completely fascinated with because there's a wealth of information not only about us humans but as well uh, about societies, about uh, all these learnings. Yeah, so that means um, I have sailed a couple of times on, on friends' boats and, and, and activities and I like it. But I'm not a, um, a sailor myself. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but it's as well something that I think would be super, super fun. To, okay. To learn. Okay. I think where I wanted to go <laughs> with that question is like, if you have any, if you have any hobby that others would perceive as weird or unusual, because that's the question I like to mm -hmm. to ask people because I think it's. Uh, it's always interesting to hear the answer to that. Um, yeah, I think that really depends on 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 the person. I think for me, it's. What I realize is that what sometimes surprises people is that I get bored very fast. And that means I look for new challenges that I can, that I can do. So I think I started so many different as well sports from uh, paragliding to um, uh, skydiving or to kayaking to all different sorts of things. What I ended up really liking and then um, more regularly do is when I have time and abilities either row on the lake um, so as a more like workout 
um, thing um, or then when I'm in, in, uh, where if I have the possibilities in, in other places to dive I really like wreck diving I think that is a super fascinating thing um, after you've seen like all the different corals and most of the, the sea animals you kind of or I at least feel like ah oh, it's like it's kind of always the same <laughs> but what is really new is like if you if you happen to have a spot where you can uh, dive around a, a sunken ship so maybe there a sailing <laughs> aspect comes into play <laughs> What I really like as well is um, I like to think I like I, I kind of like these thought experiments sometimes to think of so um, if we were now 50 years from now and would look back what would we what would we maybe tell ourselves that we could have done differently or faster and, and I think not to go too far down that road but I, I think it's really interesting to think as well um, what are things that we do now that we really won't be able to accept at a later point. And history has shown that, whether it's like um, slavery, that obviously like how it's impossible for us to understand how it even has has been like that. But more um, recently in history, women's voting rights. How the heck, how could this not have been already from the first place? Why did it take humans so long? And uh, these concepts, I think, are very interesting because when you think of vegetarianism, I, I'm not a vegetarian. I l like to eat meat. But if I think ahead, I think there will be a time humans will look back and think, what the F? How could this have been? And there may, I think there are many more of these. And these kind of, I think sometimes very interesting because it, it, re, it gives insights, I think, for us humans, how, how to improve not only our, us as an individual, but as well as a society uh, better. And obviously, I would want to um, increase the speed of that. Yeah, these are indeed very, very interesting. And I think... The, I'm also not a vegetarian myself, but uh, some very influential people in Silicon Valley and other areas. And I think also like uh, Yuval Noah Harari, mm -hmm. the, the author of uh, Sapiens, I think he said mm -hmm. even we will look great back. Great book as well. Yeah, yeah yes. great book. Yeah. Um, I can recommend it to anyone. I think he said we will look back at this century and uh, we won't, it will go down as like, the ma greatest mass genocide of animals or something like that. And I think it's just oh, yes. because yep. of so I think there is also a trend that will go in that direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something we will look back on and yeah. not really understand how this was yes, possible. Yes, yes. <laughs> and there's a lot of these examples, mm -hmm. I think. So I, I, I like that answer. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think we're coming towards the end, but maybe one more question. And it goes in a similar direction. If you could look back or give an advice to your younger self or anyone else that is now, let's say, early 20s, maybe studying or about to graduate, would you have some specific advice to them? Um, or if it's yourself, would you have any advice to your younger self? Yeah, I think I would have a ton of advice <laughs> for myself. I don't think maybe for others it's different, but I think, um, I think at the essence it's just like whenever you think you could do something or, or you have an idea, I think just trying it out, just doing I think um, uh, not shying away from just as well doing mistakes. I think as an engineer or by education, we are, I think, much more trained on really doing something. You, you cannot build a bridge by doing it 80%. Um, so that, that just doesn't work because it's too risky, it's too dangerous. <laughs> but I think with many other things in life, um, uh, you rather just try to do something, even if it's not perfect or if you're not fully... Um, uh, fully ready yet 
just because this increases the cycle of, of learnings. And I think that it eventually will be um, what I think as well, whether it's um, in terms of hobbies that you think or whether it's like work-related stuff um, on, on jobs you do. Um, I think rather just try something out if it doesn't work or if you don't like it too much, quit and do something next. Um, I think th the very same principle as with the product market fit in entrepreneurship on finding and, and adjusting that product idea to the market and looping back should be applied. And I would, I think, advise, give myself that and say like, Think of it the same, the very same way. Just try out things. If it doesn't work out, uh, adjust, learn, um, include that in, in, in your learnings, and then um, uh, it will get you to a very exciting place. Great. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. Are there any last thoughts from your side that you wanted to mention or that you want people to hear? Any last words? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think I really want to plant again the, the idea and the, the challenge of why do we accept that so many startups fail? Mm -hmm. Because before penicillin was invented, it was obviously normal that people would die that after the um, mass production as well of penicillin, obviously you can't save people. So the mortality, mortality rate dropped. And, and I think now we just accept that the majority of startups fail. And I think, why accept that? And, and, and I think if we, if there is a way to do it, it would have so many benefits to the entire society, more jobs, more products, more returns, even for investors. But um, at the end as well, more GDP um, for a country and the increase of wealth for society. So I think not accepting, it's just not acceptable that so many startups fail. Okay. Thank you very much. So. And where can people find more about Wakura? Is it, well, maybe you can quickly mention the, the yep, website yep. and where the people can find out more about you as well if they're interested. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, the best is to go on wakura.io, either read through or um, uh, join us as well um, on making that happen and um, become, become part of what we call the economy. And um, uh, if you want to um, get in touch with me, the best is probably just via LinkedIn. I'm sure you maybe can provide the link at the end of the... Yes, yeah. uh, happy to do that. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Daniel, then for, for this first episode of the League Takers podcast. Thank you very much. I'm honored. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm glad you could make this happen. And uh, hopefully this is the start to, uh, to a great adventure for, for myself and also for you with uh, economy. Thanks. Wishing you much success. With yeah, thank you. All right, guys. This was the first episode of the Leap Takers podcast. Thank you very much for listening. It would mean the world to me if you would head over to the iTunes store and search for the Leap Takers podcast with Remo Keyboards and give this show a five-star review. This will help the show to get recommended to more people and then consequently I can also get better guests for this show. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and I'm also very happy to hear about any suggestions, questions or other feedback that you have for this show. Just drop me a message. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you will enjoy the upcoming episodes as well. Bye-bye.